are listening to the Unsung Lung Podcast, presented by Alberta Lung. Welcome back to the Unsung Lung Podcast, brought to you by Alberta Lung. As always, my name is Jacob Sperling, and I am your host for this monthly podcast that will continue to educate you about lung health. You can find Alberta Lung online at www.ablung.ca, and there you can find all of the charitable programs that we offer, as well as research that we have recently funded. Before I continue on with this introduction, I'd like to make a personal apology. In the previous episode, I referred to COPD as chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, when in fact it is actually chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. I understand that to some, this may seem like a trivial mistake, but for those who suffer with this disease and their family members, a small like this, a small mistake like this could be quite irritating. Not to mention that I work for a charity that specializes in lung diseases, so you'd think that I could get their names right. Anyways, I look forward to gaining even more knowledge on here as a podcaster and becoming a better health advocate to help educate all our listeners across Canada. On a lighter note, tying into last month's topic about sleep apnea and CPAP machines, I just wanted to let our listeners know that I have reinstated Alberta Lung's CPAP refurbishment program. This program allows us to take in used CPAP machines and have them refurbished by our partners at Sleep Therapeutics. After that, they are given out to those in need who cannot afford a CPAP machine for themselves. So if you're in the Edmonton area, as our offices are located in Edmonton, or you would be kind enough to ship your used CPAP machine to us that you are no longer in need of, we'll be sure to get it to a good home. Just a reminder that you can answer a survey about the Unsung Lung podcast at www.ablung.ca forward slash unsung lung. You can tell us what you like and what you don't like about the pod, and even recommend lung health topics for future episodes. Perhaps you or a family member suffers from a specific lung disease and you want to learn more about it. I'm always more than happy to take suggestions. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. As you have probably gathered from the episode title, we are going to be talking about asthma, and I will be asking our guest a variety of questions from very general to very specific ones. I just want to give our listeners and their friends and family who may suffer from asthma the most comprehensive analysis that I can. Our guest today is Dr. Mohit Bhutani, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Medicine at the University of Alberta. Dr. Bhutani has done plenty of work with us at Alberta Lung in the past, including being instrumental in providing our patients with important information during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. He helped us record public COVID advisory videos to help patients with already compromised lungs navigate an ever more challenging world. So we look forward to having him again and using his vast knowledge of asthma for our benefit. Now that I have introduced our newest guest on the Unsung Lung Podcast, I'll send us through right into the interview.
It's a privilege to welcome Dr. Mohit Bhutani, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Medicine at the University of Alberta, to the Unsung Lung Podcast. How are you doing, Dr. Bhutani? I'm doing very well, Jacob. Uh, thanks for having me this afternoon. Absolutely. Thanks for spending some time with us. So uh, obviously, you're you're uh, a doctor, you're a physician, and and you're acclaimed one at that. We work we've worked closely with you at Alberta Lung. So I'm just wondering if you can give our listeners some background into your research and expertise. Right. Well, thanks uh, for you know, for having me this afternoon. Uh, so I, as you said, I'm a professor of medicine and a respirologist at the University of Alberta. I have a special interest in, in severe asthma, asthma, and also in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, at the university, I've got a, a job description where um, 50% of the time I'm in clinic uh, or on inpatient duty uh, doing uh, in-hospital care. And then the other 50% of the time, I'm either doing research or I, I sit on a number of different committees uh, uh, around the country looking at uh, airways disease. So that's kind of how I spend my time. Uh, from a research standpoint, I've got a special interest in, in the heart-lung interaction. What many people who may not know is that a lot of patients who live with lung disease actually have uh, a significant amount of heart disease associated with that. And so some of my research interests are looking at uh, trying to look at that heart-lung interaction and why and how the lungs affect the heart and how we can also you know, take a look at how what we can do to help improve that relationship between the two organ systems. And then my other, big other area of interest is in quality improvement. Uh, I've been here, here at the University of Alberta for what, 17 years. And you know, one of the things I've come to realize is that the care for patients with lung disease is quite uh, broad. And there's many different approaches to, the, to, um, to treating patients with lung disease. But what I'm really trying to do is trying to standardize it and trying to make sure that you know, all patients, no matter where you live in this province, uh, get the same level of care. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's really interesting that you, you say the relationship between the heart and the lung system, because I think at Alberta Lung, personally, we focus, we obviously focus in specifically on the respiratory system. And you can't do that when you, when you have a lung disease, because everything affects everything. Our, our body is a system and it's not, the, this is the lung respiratory system and this is the uh, everything else. So uh, yeah, I think that's interesting that you do that. And um, I'm sure it does really important research for for patients who need the help. So thank you for that. Um, and as you mentioned, this uh, episode is specifically about asthma. So can you tell us what asthma generally generally is and how someone is diagnosed with the disease? Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> it's a great question. So, you know, uh, asthma is something that I think most people sort of have heard about, about or uh, have known, you know, friends or family members who have had it, but, but there's a real broad understanding actually as to what asthma is. But you know, from a medical standpoint and from, uh, you know, from a sort of generalized you know, approach of looking at asthma, it's, it's a chronic lung condition. And I emphasize the chronic portion of it because um, the way that the disease develops and the inflammation that, uh, that results in the symptoms related to asthma is truly a chronic process. But patients and, and people's experiences are more episodic. So it's, you know, inflammation that's chronic with periods of acute worsenings, which result in an aggravation of those, those symptoms that, that patients normally experience. Some of those symptoms are going to be shortness of breath, cough, exercise limitation, and then these, you know, acute worsenings based on exposures that just result in an aggravation of those, uh, those symptoms that they may have on a daily basis. But it's, a, it's really a chronic lung disease that requires 
chronic lung strategy, uh, lung management strategies to try to help, you know, give patients with the, you know, the best quality of life and the best long-term outcomes. Right. And you mentioned uh, many times that you say it's chronic. So this kind of leads into my next question in that with the notion of being diagnosed with something like asthma, well, specifically asthma, uh, is it possible to do certain things to counteract asthma developing or is it sort of inevitable in people who are predisposed to it? Yeah. So this is the thing. So that's a good question. So, you know, we we often think about asthma as being a disease that requires some genetics that would, would predispose you to developing this disease but it also requires you to have some exposures in the environment that might trigger the genetics to be activated to allow to, to manifest the, the disease itself. So it really is an interaction between sort of uh, environment and, and your genetics that result in it. So there's nothing specific right now that you could do to avoid asthma from developing simply because we just don't know if you're at risk for developing this, this, this illness. We don't, um, you know, screen for it. You know, there's no blood tests when you're born, unlike, you know, some congenital diseases, like say, for example, cystic fibrosis, where we can do a screen and we can say this person is going to more likely develop cystic fibrosis or not. So we don't have that, that capability right now. So essentially, you know, you live your life and if you develop those uh, symptoms, then it's really important for you to report, you know, symptoms that are in keeping with asthma to your doctor uh, in order for you to, to be diagnosed and treated. Now, now I say that, but at the same time, there is, you know, certain forms of asthma, in particular, occupational asthma, where, you know, you, again, are exposed to something uh, in the environment that you're at, and that, that exposure is so intense, it results in an inflammatory process that uh, results in the asthma paradigm, but it's not something that you necessarily are, are predisposed to developing, but it's an actual intense occupational exposure that might result in the development of the of the illness. So, you know, you can't really do anything to prevent it, uh, but there's lots of things you can do, you know, to treat it and to, you know, try to live the best life you possibly can. Right. So with uh, environmental triggers, uh, I'm studying actually something with Alberta Lung right now in uh, diacetyl and, and it, uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I hope I am, but uh, uh -huh. how it, how it uh, can lead to popcorn lung and how it was banned in in many uh food products and things like that so is that kind of how a similar trigger to something that could trigger asthma it's just something in the environment um that yeah. works like that that's right yeah so what you're studying there is a little bit different than what would result in, in asthma itself but there's a long laundry list of, of of exposures and occupations that um that can result in, in the development of asthma um, and so that's exactly right. So you're, you're having this exposure and it results in, in the symptoms, but there's many different exposures that can actually happen at work that result in not asthma, like so other lung diseases that are not asthma, but uh, asthma, I would say, is probably the most common sort of disease that results from occupational exposures. Sure. So uh, on to our next question now, is asthma intertwined with allergies? And can a specific, per, uh, can a person that has a specific allergy trigger that asthma attack or would it be better known as an allergic reaction and how do you how do you uh, differ between the two yeah right so the the understanding of asthma sort of evolved quite a bit and there's different terminology that we've used historically and what we use now but um you know right now i think you know the most common you know sort of understanding of it is that there's allergic asthma and there's non-allergic asthma and allergic asthma, you know, represents the, the lion's share of asthmatics that are out there. It's the vast majority of people have an allergic asthma. So there are definitely allergies that, that are out there that, um, that can actually trigger the asthmatic response and result in those symptoms. So the two kind of go hand in hand uh, with each other. 
Um, but but you need, you know sort of what those allergies are, are going to be individual to the to the patient. So not all asthmatics have the same kinds of allergies. Uh, not all asthmatics have the same types of triggers that would result in the asthma symptoms becoming worse, right? So some patients I see, you know, say, you know, doc, the the the, the winter is the worst time of year because the cold air exposure for me really causes problems. I have other patients saying, you know, it's actually the spring and the summer that are the worst times of the year that for me because of the allergens coming from grass and pollens and trees and those sorts of things. So that's kind of what makes the, the disease very interesting is that, you know, I don't think, you know, I can, you know, um, you know, my, my history taking and my, my physical examination, my, my, my plans for most of my patients, you know, are not, you know, you know, one size fits all. It's really sort of trying to understand how the disease, um, you know, affects a patient, how, what, and what that treatment will be, will be based on those, those findings that we have from the history, the physical, and some of the diagnostics tools that we use. But, um, but yeah, the, but the lion's share of patients are, are that we do treat are allergic asthmatics. Perfect. So uh, I just thought of a question right now. Um, personally, myself, I, I don't have asthma, but I have really bad allergies and I am taking allergy shots. So it, is an allergy shot something that could reduce the severity of an asthma attack or are they not really related? Right. So I'll just uh, preface this right at the very beginning. I'm not, I'm not an allergist myself, but I will, uh, I will, uh, I play one sometimes on TV. I'm that's a <laughs> kind of how I, how I say it. So I, I do have, I, I dabble in it obviously because of the overlap with asthma, but um, so certainly, you know, patients with uh, allergies, uh, we certainly work with an allergist too, that we think allergies are a big trigger, a big driver of asthmatic um, symptoms. We do ask our allergy colleagues to have a look at them to sort of see if allergy shots um, would be useful in, in that, uh, in that uh, treatment paradigm to help improve their asthma control. So I would say that certainly that's a consideration uh, for for patients who do have allergic asthma, uh, but uh, whether or not they get allergy shots again, I think kind of going back to the you know, original point is that you know the asthmatic journey is going to be individual to that one to each patient, and so um, yeah, certainly we do use allergy shots in some patients, but I wouldn't say we use it in, in every patient. Right, awesome. And then so, a final question on out well. Asthma is intertwined with allergies, so the rest of the podcast will be closer related. But the last one, uh, specifically about allergies, uh, for myself, allergies are are really bad, and I don't have asthma. So, is it kind of like a culminating, like it just keeps piling up? If someone has allergies and asthma, it's twice as bad as if you just had either. Or obviously, it's it's quality, and it totally depends per each person, but can it be added on and, and and make i guess quality of life that much worse for the for the person who has asthma oh yeah for sure you know it's so definitely so allergies you know allergies are are really uh you know problematic for 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 patients right you know so the the whole the whole concept of of you know environmental allergies is is a whole area of study and a whole area of research that that we go into and certainly the quality of life for patients who have very significant allergies can be quite poor if you have asthma on top of that, you know, the, the clearly the, the, the whole sort of physiology, the pathophysiology of how asthma develops, there's an overlap there. And, and certainly we know allergies will make your asthma worse. So if you've got asthma on top of that, you know, if you're, if you've got the symptoms of allergies and on top of that, you can't breathe very well, the quality of life is very, very poor for sure for patients of uncontrolled disease. But thankfully, we've got good medicines. Um, you know, you're going through allergy shots, but there's also so lots of over-the-counter medications that are available to help control, you know, the, the significance of the, of the allergies uh, quite nicely. And, and as well, from an asthma standpoint, we have really good medicines 
uh, available to help you know treat the, the 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 symptoms of asthma. And so I think we can achieve a very good quality of life. But you know I think if you're at, it's, it's more of a one way street in my opinion that the allergies would make the asthma worse. Um, you know I'm not aware of any literature that would say that the asthma may make your allergies worse, but because the two are sort of just go hand in hand. Um, that, that, um, you know, if you have bad allergies, you're likely your asthma control won't be as good. Yeah, perfect. That's good to know. Um, so moving on a little bit from allergies, we'll touch back on it and medication just in a little bit here. But, um, first of all, once someone is diagnosed with asthma, what kind of tests are needed to monitor the disease? Okay, that's great. So maybe we'll take a step back for a second, just to talk about maybe the diagnosis of asthma, you know, and, and so one of the things, the big challenges we have with, with asthma is that, um, you know, the symptoms of asthma are very sort of uh, general, like, you know, there was some, sometimes, you know, you hear a wheeze and all of a sudden, you know, that, you know, whether it's the, the, the patient themselves or the doc think, oh, this is asthma. So, you know, the, really the diagnosis of, of asthma in, in and of itself requires, you know, appropriate history taking. And I can't stress that enough, you know, getting a good sense of how the symptoms manifest themselves in the patient, um, how they experience the, the symptoms on a day-to-day -day basis, what kinds of flares they have, what are their triggers. You really got to spend a good amount of time really getting to understand, you know, are the symptoms in keeping with that of asthma? And then you follow that up with a good physical examination to make sure that the that what we what we are hearing you know from a history standpoint is corroborated with uh, the physical exam that goes along with that. And then to make the diagnosis, you you know that you know it's really a combination of the history, physical examination, and then some confirmatory testing. And the one that I think most people you know have gone through is something called a pulmonary function test or a lung function test. Um, a lung function test has three components to it, where one assesses the airways, which is called spirometry. One addresses the lung volumes, and then the other one addresses the ability of oxygen to get across your lungs. For asthma, the only thing that you need to make the diet, you know, to, that, that would demonstrate a finding that's in keeping with the asthma you know, diagnosis is what we call reversibilities. We want to see a change in, your, in, in, the, in the spirometry before and after we give you a medication uh, that you inhale to see if there's an improvement in the lung function. And we have criteria on for what that, what that significance is. Now we see this all the time is, you know, and, and where patients come in, get referred in for, for asthma and, you know, sort of, it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, but then they get their spirometry and it's normal. And then, you know, we get these opinions from, from usually from family physicians saying, I think they've got asthma, but they actually, the, the, the spirometry did, was, didn't diagnose it. And then, you know, this comes back down to sort of understanding, you know, again, how the asthma, you know, affects patients. So if you're, you know, worst time of the year is, you know, spring, summer, and you do the spirometry in the fall, well, because of the variation in the, in the degree of inflammation that goes along with, with this disease, you actually may not have a lot of inflammation at that point at time of the year. So you might get a, a spirometry that is actually normal. So what we sort of recommend is that you know, if it looks, you know, and it sounds like it's asthma, but the, 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 the spirometry is not confirmatory, you can do a couple of things. One, you can repeat the spirometry at a time when maybe they're a bit more symptomatic. Uh, or two, you can do some home testing and follow what's called your, your peak flows. So peak flows are a little device you can buy from the pharmacy, and then you can actually just, you know, take a big breath in and blow into it all the way. And it gives you a reading. And if we see a variation between morning and night or different times of the day in the peak flow, um, that's, you know, that's an, you know, that indicates that there's an asthmatic response that can also help you sort of make that, that diagnosis. So we use, you know, spirometry, lung function, 
or use peoples primarily. And then when it becomes really challenging for, for you to make that diagnosis, we do have some specialty testing. So things like um, something called a methicoline challenge, which kind of falls under the, the umbrella of a bronchial provocation test. So it's a mouthful of words, words there, but, um, uh, but bronchial provocation testing, methicoline challenge is one type of that, the most common type. So we do that at the University of Alberta and usually at specialized centers, we do that. Um, if we think that you know the majority of your symptoms are just exercise related, we can do an exercise um, bronchoconstriction test. So exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. So we do that on a on a cardiopulmonary exercise uh, or sort of a treadmill, uh, monitoring your heart and your lung function. And then there's some other tests such as an induced sputum, where we get you to you know in a specialized manner uh, produce a bit of spit, and we can look at to see if those those inflammatory cells are present. And then rarely, very rarely do we need to do something called a bronchoscopy, which is a scope of your lungs to help confirm that. But I would say that's probably the, 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 the very, very few in, you know, ever uh, that we do. So, you know, the diagnosis of, of asthma can be nuanced a bit. Uh, and it can sometimes can take a bit of time. So I always advocate, you know, that for patients who've got the diagnosis of asthma, just make sure at one point in time you've had spirometry or some sort of confirmatory, you know, physiological testing uh, that to make sure that you've got it. Because of many patients, unfortunately, who got the diagnosis of asthma, have actually never gone for these tests. And we really are trying to work hard within Alberta to try to to change that narrative and make sure that you know that patients uh, do get that that testing done. done. So then going, kind of going back to your question about how do you monitor it after you, um, after you get the diagnosis, you know, historically, you know, the, the, the most conventional way is we follow it clinically, as I like to say. So at regular routine visits, and I, again, because I've kind of emphasized that this is a chronic medical problem that you should be so followed, you know, routinely for your asthma, whether that's three months, six months, once a year, you know, again, that will depend on how the disease manifests itself, in, you know, in yourself and the kind of, you know, control you have. But, you know, when we see our patients, we want to review their symptoms and the Canadian Thoracic Society has uh, recently updated their guidelines and we've got very nice criteria on what we think our patients have who have well-controlled asthma. So when you ask those questions to the patient, you know, how well is your asthma controlled? And then if you're not well controlled, there's a there's an algorithm of what we can do to try to help improve that. The second thing we would do is we'd want to know how much reliever medication you're using and how many flare-ups you've had. So using those pieces of information we put together and sort of say this is how you best monitor that, you know, the patient. Now, one of the challenges we have in, in asthma and respiratory diseases is that you know it's the subject the subjectivity of, of the of the symptom of shortness of breath. So Jacob, you and I can, you know, have, you know, have a, you know, kind of, we have, you know, what makes you shorter breath may be different than what makes me shorter breath because we're all built differently and we're all in different states of health. So sometimes getting that information on our patients can be a bit of a challenge. So occasionally we do use those peak flows, um, you know, that we've talked about earlier for the diagnosis and ask patients to follow those along. And so once we know what their normal peak flow is, they can monitor it for us at home very easily by just blowing into that tube and giving us number reading, bringing it into the clinic for a review. And we sort of see, okay, well, let's see how good it's been. And if there's, you know, a lot of, you know, large variations in the peak flow, then we can you know, discuss what, what drove those. And if there needs to be any difference in, in or any change in your, in your management strategies. So, so I'd say those are the sort of the conventional ways of how we monitor it. 
And then, you know, occasionally, again, we need to do spirometry again, or maybe we need to do things like the methicoline challenges or, or do things like uh, exercise induced bronchoconstriction studies. So, uh, but for the most part, it'd be reviewing your symptoms, your reliever use, how many flare-ups you've had. I'd say that's the, the lion's share of people that we would, um, how we would follow the lion's, lion's share of people. Perfect. That's very interesting because there's definitely a few things I didn't know about in there. And I know quite a few people with, with breathing problems or, or full, uh, having the disease of asthma. So that's good to know. Well, there's some really cool stuff happening too. There's, um, there's new uh, tools that are coming out, uh, something called the, uh, fractional excretion of nitric oxide. So when you've got a lot of this inflammation within your lungs, you produce this uh, gas called nitric oxide. And there's now these new tools that we can, that we can purchase and, and, and utilize um, uh, to see how, you know, what your, your, what we call pheno F-E-N-O is, and we can, um, you know, monitor that as well. That's a bit new. It's early, early stages with that, but I would, you know, I would say that, you know, the, the, the ability to, to follow and monitor our patients is really critical. Perfect. Yeah, that's really interesting. So we talked about asthma triggers earlier in the episode and more generally, but can you give our listeners some of the most common triggers for asthma attacks, whether they're allergic or not? <laughs> yeah. So, so again, you know, I would say that, you know, allergies would be probably the, the biggest thing. Um, again, you know, I think we, you'd have to go back and again, everyone's asthma is a bit different. So some people are affected by cold air. Some people are affected by exposures to perfumes and scents, um, things like smoke. So like last year in the last couple of summers, we've had very poor air quality days uh, in, in Edmonton in particular, and certainly all over Alberta. And you realize that, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that, that can certainly drive uh, worsening of asthma. So I kind, of, I kind of break it down to infectious and non-infectious components. So I would say the non-infectious would be your allergies, uh, the seasonal variation, uh, smoke, uh, and then sort of scents and, and, and things like that. The other thing that would drive uh, exacerbate or flare-ups would be um, infections, and, and clearly viral uh, disease is the number one driver of worsening asthma symptoms. And so viruses of all sorts, respiratory viruses of all sorts, can can drive that. Um, and then lastly, you know, I think a big thing, and, and hopefully I want to get this point into to the listeners, especially the patients is that um, you know, their role in, in their asthma management can play a role in driving some of the worsening symptoms. What we do know is that patients with asthma, they, they don't always use their inhalers routinely or as prescribed. And the second thing is that they don't always uh, use the devices that, they're, that, they're, that they've been, the medicines come in properly. And so, you know, I think that's another big area that's an easy fix. You know, if you use your medications properly and you use them uh, as prescribed, um, those two interventions can go a long way to try to help, uh, you know, reduce the flare-up risk. So uh, I just want to remind our, our listeners here about that, you know, that that they can play a role in, in trying to reduce that flare-up rate as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's been kind of a common theme when I've been studying asthma at Alberta Lung and, and watching videos and doing my own research is that a lot of the time the patients don't use their medication correctly. And, and it can be as simple as that to, to manage your disease often um, more times than not. Correct. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? I think, you know, we get referrals in all the time and, and, and it, you know, our, our experience is what's sort of out there in the, in the medical literature is that there is over 50% of the patients that are probably not using the medications as prescribed and the technique can, can wane. And it's, it's not easy. You know, I, 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 you know, there's, there's many different medicines that come in different delivery systems and you're using one for your reliever and you're using another for your maintenance. And so, you know, the, the, the nuances of the new devices is, or any devices really can be challenging. And, 
you know, like anybody else in life, like we always, you know, once you get, ex, you know, quote unquote experience with something, you tend to cut corners, you, you know, you sort of get, you feel like you got the handle on this. And, and unfortunately with, with inhaler technique, um, you really want to make sure you're methodical in, in the way you approach the use of it. Right. Perfect. So we've talked about diagnosis and, and monitoring the disease, but how do you treat asthma? And most of us are accustomed to seeing those with asthma use an inhaler, but are there different alternatives to, to just an inhaler and what, if there are, if there are, what are they? Right. That's a great question. So the way that we approach uh, the the treatment is there's just, so we'll we'll talk about, um, you know, sort of uh, mild or moderate asthma first, and then we can talk about severe asthma afterwards. So when it comes to mild and moderate asthma, the approach is, is, is um, we look at, there's the reliever medication and then there's your maintenance medications. Okay. And so the reliever medication is exactly that. You're in trouble, can't, you got bad symptoms of asthma, you use that reliever medication to help open up the airways to help you breathe a bit easier, okay? The, the, the one, that's the one that makes people feel better. And that's one, you know, in anybody's mind, if you, you take a drug in, it opens up the airways, you feel better, you, you're thinking that that's the drug I need to be on, that's the drug I should be on all the time. Um, but in fact, that's the one that we're trying to make sure that you use as least, uh, you know, as possible. That that's the one that just is used simply for relief and very few times because we really want the maintenance medications in addition to good environmental control, in addition to good technique, in addition to good compliance to help um, you use, um, you know, to help keep the disease under control. And those maintenance medications contain something called this, an inhaled corticosteroid. The inhaled corticosteroid is really like the quarterback for treating all asthmatics simply because the inflammation that's associated with the development of asthma is treated very well with that inhaled corticosteroid. So that maintenance medication is really critical to do it. And that's again, quarterbacked by the inhaled corticosteroid. So unfortunately for every asthmatic inhalers are the, 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 the only delivery system that we have right now that works effectively. Um, there are some other options for mild and moderate um, in, a, in a tablet form. There's a drug called um, Montelukast, and it's a pill. It's got a very sort of you know sort of niche use within uh, within the asthma paradigm in terms of how we treat asthma. It's, I would say for the vast majority of people, it's more of an add-on medication rather than a, a sort of a cornerstone medication like the inhaled corticosteroids. Okay, so those are the the oral the, the sort of the inhaled therapies that that uh, that we use for for asthma. So maintenance. So the there's so the inhaled corticosteroids, you know, are maintenance. And that if the asthma symptoms come go from mild to moderate, we have you know combination medications where the inhaled steroid is combined with a long-acting beta agonist. It's called so an ICS LABA. And again, as if the symptoms worsen, we increase, you know, we add on the LABA to the inhaled corticosteroid, the ICS, uh, because uh, that combination seems to provide us, you know, with good control with the least amount of inhaled steroid to, that we need to provide for our patients. Once the, if the disease is very severe and, and, and becomes severe asthmatics, which represent about five to 10% of the population of asthmatics, so not a huge proportion, there's a new sort of uh, set of medications uh, that are out there um, that are called biologics. And these are injectable medications. So you deliver the most of them um, through a, a needle, like a, like a diabetic needle for insulin. So just underneath the skin. And those medications are really reserved uh, for patients who have very severe or have severe asthma simply because they're having poor quality of life or they're having flare-ups that require going to the hospital or requiring multiple bursts of, of a drug called prednisone, 
So those are the ones that we um, that we uh, that we save for that uh, that portion of, for patients. Um, I should mention there's another inhaled medication called a, a long-acting muscarinic antagonist or a LAMA, and we often use those that inhaler on top of the inhaled steroids and the long-acting antagonist uh, prior to you know using the biologics, just because um, the biologics are quite expensive, very effective but quite expensive, and we really want to make sure that we use it in the right population of patients. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, my, my next question, you kind of cover it was about if there's different kind of kinds of inhalers. And I think you covered it all for us. So I think we'll move on from that. That's good to know about all the medications that are available and, and kind of, you don't want to always go for the, the quick fix, correct? That's 100% correct. Yeah. And you know, this is one that we call it the, the paradoxes of asthma management, you know, like, uh, Although the inhaled corticosteroids are the quarterback, it's it's the uh, it's the reliever medication that people sort of you know get first and get and become really dependent upon because they, they think it works and and it's not that they think it works it actually does work, but the bronchodilators help open the airway, but the they do nothing to address the inflammation that resulted in the airways narrowing in the first place. So whereas the inhaled corticosteroids will hopefully prevent that narrowing to take place. And hopefully, you know, prevent you from needing any, you know, uh, reliever medication. So you can do all the things you want to do, whether it's, you know, sports, uh, just regular day-to-day activities, playing with children, those sorts of things, right? Right. Perfect. Okay. Awesome. I think we'll finish off with one more question. So on a more general note to, to conclude the podcast, how can someone with asthma be better equipped to live with the disease? And do you have any sort of general tips and tricks that are maybe less well-known to the general public? And I'm kind of asking for, for your, your secrets of the trade. So if you don't mind spilling those, I'll, I'll take all that you got. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I, I wish there was a magic bullet that would, uh, that would help solve uh, all the, you know, all the ills that go along with asthma, but, you know, for, for, on a, on a scale, you know, on a, on a, on a perspective of asthma management, you know, you, you just have to understand, I we go back to this, that it's a, it's a chronic condition and it's a chronic condition that requires, you know, regular maintenance, take your car for an oil change once a year. Uh, you know, you always want to do some maintenance on, on, on various aspects of things around your house. You got to take care of your lungs in the same way. So regular, you know, reassessments of, of, um, of strategies. So we've got really good guidelines, you know, that are available in Canada. Uh, hopefully, you know, your family physician and, or maybe your you know, specialists are involved in the care and they can help, you know, reinforce some of these principles that are out there. But, you know, when we look at it, you know, a chronic condition of any sort, and this includes to asthma, uh, is that, you know, requires patients to be educated. So I'm a real big believer in that, that, that patients need to be partners uh, in, in the sort of the medical journey. Uh, an informed patient, an educated patient really just will be a better, will just have better outcomes. And I think one of the things that if you have not, for patients that are out there listening to this, I have not gone to certified respiratory educator for a session on asthma education, I would really think it's a value, uh, it's an hour well spent. Um, you know, most pharmacies uh, have, ph- have a pharmacist that has a certified respiratory education designation. They've gone through a special course to be that. There are a number of different sources around the around the province, um, you know, where respiratory educators are available. And so I would say, if you don't know, talk to your pharmacist, talk to your family physician, they can find out for you where the where, where these educators are. But I think it's really important for you to be, you know, in, you know, understanding why, what the disease is, what you can do to help improve the outcomes. The second thing I think is, is just making sure, kind of going back to the earlier point about making sure that you are compliant with the medications that are prescribed for you. 
our fear for patients with asthma is that if that inflammation is left untreated over the long term, um, the, the concern is that some scarring can develop along the airways, along the lungs. And as a result of that, the lungs become a bit more uh, stiff. And when that happens, you know, at 20 or 30 years of age, you may not be as concerned about that 40 or 50 years of age. But as you age, if that scarring becomes, you know, permanent, we all lose a bit of lung function as we age as well. So if you've got scarred down lungs and you're losing a bit of lung function, normally as we age, that intersection might create some problems for you when you're 60, 70, 80. So, you know, our, our worry is that, you know, that, that, that patients, you know, develop these long-term complications unnecessarily. So your role in this system, you know, patient's role in the system, make sure they use the medications properly and that they use it as prescribed. And then again, like I sort of said, regular checkups going, you know, depending on, you know, the severity of your asthma and the needs associated with that, you know, at least once a year going to just to make sure that everything is, is, is up to date. Uh, to your questions earlier about new innovations, and there's lots of research going on in asthma, you know, lots of it's happening within Alberta too, but nationally and internationally and at the U of A, we're very much, uh, you know, in, 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 in the know with this stuff. Um, and, and at the end of the day, just talking to your doctor about, you know, what changes may or may not be be happening in the asthma management. And then, um, you know, I think that's, you know, you gotta be, you'd be able to report your, you'd be clearly able to report your symptoms to your, to your, to your family doctor, to your specialist and make sure that you report any flare ups that, um, that, that occur. So I think regular routine, you know, nurturing of a chronic condition can help you have really good long-term outcomes. Great. Perfect. Yeah. That's really good to know. And, and back to your first point about education, we're obviously all about education as this is an informative podcast. So it all kind of runs full circle. So thank you for that. That's really awesome. Um, I'll, I'll put you on the spot right now. Don't feel like you have to answer it. Um, but if if there's any kind of plug you want to make for your own research or anything where people can find anything that you've done, um, go ahead and give it out. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't let you give a plug on the show. But um, if there's nothing you can think of, don't worry about it at all. No, I, that's that's fair. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, but no, I think uh, my my goal today was just to really to get out to the to the listeners and sort of just maybe inform them a little bit about where asthma is. Uh, that uh, that you know be a, be a, be an advocate for yourself and be in, and work um, you know with your with your you know clinical care team to help you get the best outcomes. At the university, if you're interested in in volunteering for any clinical trials. Um, you know, if you're, if you're, if you want to be participating in some of the research that's taking place, you know, uh, contacting uh, my office uh, through the, you know, through the University of Alberta website and letting us know that you'd be interested in, 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 in that sort of thing. We'd be happy to, to speak to you about any of the clinical trials that we have going on. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing your expertise, expertise with us, Dr. Bhutani. I know for myself, I can say that I've definitely learned a lot about asthma and and I've been enlightened on the disease, which is what I want to do every day that I work here. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Jacob. It's been a real pleasure. Good luck to you on your, on your podcast. I think this is an excellent idea. And again, another, another um, you know, uh, well-done activity by, by Lung in Alberta. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks so much. So with that, I'll send it to the outro. What an amazing interview with Dr. Bhutani. I can't thank him enough for coming on the Unsung Lung podcast and sharing some of his expertise with us, and there was a lot of it. So to conclude this episode, I'm going to wrap it up with three overarching thoughts about uh, the interview. And obviously, as I mentioned with Dr. Bhutani's expertise, I could think of a lot more than three, but I'm going to try to keep this simple. So... Yeah, uh, the first thing that I thought, starting at the very beginning of the podcast, was Dr. Bhutani's mentioning of the heart-lung interaction and just how important 
it is to recognize that our body systems are interconnected. So, and we come across this problem, I do specifically at Alberta Lung, and because lung is actually in the name of our title, sometimes we focus a little bit too much on the respiratory system and not the circulatory or other systems in the body. And they're all interconnected. So obviously with asthma, it's important to exercise to the level that you can. And tying into last month's podcast with, uh, with CPAP machines, it's important to use your CPAP machine, but it's also, you, uh, it's also worthwhile to get into a rhythm before bed. So we just have to combine as many different systems in our body as we can to keep healthy and optimize our health. The second overarching point I took from Dr. Bhutani is how he mentioned that asthma is a chronic disease, how that it encompasses chronic inflammation with episodic acute worsenings. So obviously with that, it is important to have regular visits with your respirologist or your family doctor to make sure that you're monitoring the disease properly. So you have to encourage your family and friends that they continue to monitor it. it Asthma doesn't only happen when you have your episodes, it's always. And maybe if you have a better grasp on it and you go more regular to your doctor, you can reduce those episodic acute worsenings. Obviously, I'm not a doctor like Dr. Bhutani is, and I'm not sure if that's possible, but I know that regular visits do help asthma. So I encourage that as always. The final overarching topic and theme that I took from the Dr. Bhutani interview is how proper medication and inhaler use is imperative to asthma treatment and how if you don't fully take in your medication and breathe it into your lungs it can cause significant problems. So with that I'd like to mention uh, Alberta Lungs Aero Chamber Assistance Program. What an aero chamber is is it's a little device that can be used in combination with your inhaler and it helps you get the medication down to your lungs all the way down to your lungs and so your medication doesn't get stuck in your throat and cause side effects so that's an important program that we have and um, it's it's really important to know about medication use and misuse actually is is just as important so if you'd like to learn more about how Alberta Lung helps people in our communities, like those with asthma, and specifically about our Aero Chamber Assistance Program, you can visit www.ablung.ca. And just a reminder to follow us on all of our social media channels. Twitter and Instagram are at LungABNWT, and on Facebook at ABNWTLung. If you'd like to support the pod, you can visit www patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash unsung lung to become a patron and help our show continue to grow as always i'll be sure to put the link in the show notes for anyone who is interested for more information specifically on the unsung lung podcast please visit www.ablung.ca forward slash unsung dash lung there you can find all the links to each episode and a survey. As I mentioned earlier, you can even submit topic suggestions if you have a particular lung health topic that you'd like to learn more about. Remember to stay locked to our channel for May's podcast. I'm securing a guest right now and I know they will be just as informative as, as these first episodes have been. So with that, I'll conclude this edition of the Unsung Lung Podcast with our motto, just remember to breathe.